Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We have with us Mariana Mazzucato and Kenneth Rogoff and really talk about this economic moment that we are in into this autumn and into 2019. And so much of that economic moment is this linkage of economics into finance and it is the banking and finance system. We had Mr. Ackerman on earlier talking so much, rationalizing out 10 years, and we've seen what Deutsche Bank has done and many other uh, troubled banks as well. Ken, what a gap between U.S. banking and European banking. Did you expect to see that five years ago, seven years ago, ten years ago? Well, the banking system is much bigger in Europe as part of the problem, so that's made it harder for them to deal with. They depend on the banking system more, but also the uh, balkanized regula- regulation. So they would do the stress tests in Europe. The Italians would stress test the Italian banks. The French would stressed us, the French banks, they didn't even talk to each other even though the loans were interconnected. They're changing that, they put the ECB in charge of it, but it's still having trouble really forcefully taking the reins. So the European banks, that was a big part of why the recovery was so slow. Ken, um, what, what does it mean? So the recovery was so slow, but were central banks right to do that? Or should they have done something else? If you look at inequality and maybe you know, some of the stems of populism, is it due to central banks and what they did? I mean, I, I find that hard to see. I mean, I mean, cutting interest rates is usually considered redistributing from people who have money to people who are borrowing. So I, I think the central banks, frankly, I would have been more radical. I think I wrote a paper in December 2008 uh, for which I took a lot of criticism saying inflation is not the lesser, is not the greater evil right now. You should worry about something much worse. So actually, I think they were a little cautious uh, and reluctant to be more creative in their use of instruments. But of course, fiscal policy could have done more. But politically, in Europe, that wasn't easy. I advocated writing down the debts in the periphery countries, and I think that would have been a good investment for Germany and for France. Didn't happen. Mariana, do you agree with that? Absolutely. And I mean, I think that the key problem right now is that the source, the key, if you want, factors that led to the crisis, things like private debt, private debt, not public debt, private debt being out of hand. The ratio of private debt to disposable income in the UK is back at record levels. Mm-hmm. We also have record level hoarding in the um, industrial sector. We have record level financialization um, in industry. So increasing amount of profits just being used to boost share prices, stock options, surprise, surprise, executive pay. So over $3 trillion having been spent on share right. buybacks in the Fortune 500 companies. All these problems are actually getting worse. We have not reformed the fundamental system. And you can create all the money you want through QE, but if you aren't also creating opportunities in the real economy, that money just ends up back in the banks. I I want to go back to the banks as well. And this goes back to 1974 when Hayek won the Nobel Prize and the other guy, Myrtle, wouldn't even get up on stage. It was so controversial. And and Ken, you nailed this in your latest Project Syndicate piece uh, on how we didn't clear the Greece problem. 
Why are we afraid, Mariana, to clear markets? Why are we afraid? Why are we so tentative about clearing the Greece problem or clearing the banking problem? What's, where did the fear come from, the timidity in your racket? But the problem is how you define the Greece problem. I mean, let me just talk about Italy for a minute, which is much worse than Greece. If Italy goes bust, we're going to see huge Ken's chaos in with Europe. Absolutely. Italy has yeah. had a lower deficit than Germany for the last 20 years. Italy's problem was not the deficit. Italy's debt to GDP is completely out of the roof. But why? Not because it was spending too much, but it wasn't. <clears throat> Both the private sector and the public sector were quite inertial. They had all sorts of parasitic relationships between them. There was lack of investment by key Italian industrial players like Fiat. Interestingly, when Fiat came here, Obama, in a moment of confidence, said, you know, Chrysler, which was bailed out by the U.S. government, because we didn't just bail out the banks, we also bailed out industry. He said, you have to invest in this country in hybrid technology if you want Chrysler. So Marchione, who passed away, who's a great uh, uh, entrepreneur, he said, fine. We will. But in Italy, they didn't. In Italy, the relationship between public and private has been right. extremely problematic. And the public sector hasn't invested. Is Italy going to be, Ken, in the fourth edition of This Time is Different? I mean, is that where we're heading? And this is going to be like the Spain of 16th century? Could be. I mean, I think as long as real interest rates stay this low, we'll simply see a country that, as Mariana describes, has a lot of corruption, is not highly functional, isn't growing at the rate that it could. I might add that Italy uh, suffered a lot from China. They competed in a lot of spheres with China. It's part of why they didn't do well. But if real interest rates were to rise, I don't expect that, but I'm not going to say it could never happen, then suddenly right. funding their deficit would be very I want to, Francine, jump in here on your Italy. Please, I think this is important. Yeah, but, but does it all depend on Mariana? It, it depends on whether um, you know the, the markets maybe are too short-termism. Is they just want to know from the populist leaders whether they will stick to the E rules or not? Is that the wrong thing for the market to be focusing on? The market should be fundamentally worried that you cannot have a monetary union with the level of skewed, so different levels of competitiveness that we currently have in Europe. So instead of obsessing that everyone has to fit the three percent rule, right, the fiscal compact. What really we should be doing in Europe, if we are going to have you know, cohesion, is to learn lessons from each other. So the kind of investments, again, in both the private and the public sector that have been made in Northern Europe, and I'm thinking also of the type of financial system that we have, for example, in Germany, where you have patient, long-term finance, enabling, for example, the steel sector in Germany to really transform itself along the whole Energiewende, green transformation of the country. We don't have that in Southern Europe. We have consumption-led growth. We have, you know, there, there just isn't that level of ambition, vision, national plan. We have a financial system which is actually quite short-termist, just like it is in the Anglo-Saxon world. But we, I mean, the opportunity for Europe right now is to think about right. itself as a hub of innovation. Think of itself of how does it actually differ from China? How does it differ also from the U.S. Mm -hmm. in terms, for example, of the stakeholder governance model well, in Northern Europe I, that could become strong? I, I would just say, and sort of seconding what Mariana said, but maybe emphasizing the fact the euro was just the mother of all mistakes here. They certainly should have brought really Greece in. Yeah. 
uh, Italy, if they didn't, weren't on the euro, okay, they wouldn't be Sweden suddenly, but they'd have been able to deal more easily. They need more time. They have a lot of adjustments. Mariana described it very eloquently, but it's very hard to do within the system. It's not okay. just the fiscal deficits. It's the monetary We could go for four hours here, and what I think Francine and I want to do is get it back to the theme, and particularly, folks, what we see in America is of a gilded age and of what we've seen politically with President uh, Trump as well. Is there a persistency to this gilded age? Can there be a persistency to the, the politics and the culture that Donald Trump represents? I hope not. But I mean, I think in terms of the economy, a lot of what we're seeing is possibly sustainable. Uh, there, uh, Larry Summers sort of said we're in secular stagnation. I argued, no, we, after a financial crisis, you have this long period of slow growth. It can take eight to 10 years to recover. There are some of these trends in demographics and productivity, et cetera. But some of what you were seeing was the financial crisis, probably at least half yeah. of it. And there's catch up. So no, I think uh, you know, knock on wood, it could go well for a while. In your index, there's no Donald Trump. I was surprised by that. Why not? Why didn't you write about President Trump in this movement that we see in America? I think I do mention that I mean, he's, well, first of all, he's very unique. I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> in the sense that he's the first U.S. president to really attack those institutions in the U.S. which have been key for U.S. competitiveness. The first thing he did, literally the first month in office, he went after ARPA-E, which is a sister organization of DARPA, but in the Department of Energy. DARPA, as you know, was key to founding the Internet and has been a key source of innovation, including of the Siri um, in all our phones. Um, in fact, everything on our phone is basically funded by the U.S. government, Internet, GPS, Siri, touchscreen. And he went after those organizations. And that's, it's quite interesting because, you know, China actually learned from the lessons of Silicon Valley, right? So China today is investing massively through different types of state actors alongside private actors um, in what I think will be the next big thing, which is the Green Revolution. Um, and they wouldn't have been able to do that without the patient finance, for example, of the China Development Bank. Um, different, they're increasing R&D spending by over 100% in the last 10 years. And so the U.S. kind of talks Jefferson, but acts Hamilton. Oh, <laughs> but, I like that. But China acts and talks Hamilton. But um, Trump is dismantling the Hamiltonian legacy. And I'm not talking about the musical. I'm talking about the real, you know, active strategic investments of the U.S. government, which have been fundamental to the Internet revolution, right. nanotech, biotech, and clean right. tech. I love that. Tesla would not have existed without the U.S. government. Well, the last word to Mariana, which is appropriate. Ken Rogoff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The, uh, I'm going to put two books here, folks. I really can't say. And, uh, these are two really different books. The Curse of Cash, now in its 15th printing. This is a brave book book, to say the least, on uh, the cash economy and also on negative interest rates. And also, as well, this must read the value of everything. You agree, you disagree, you want to scream at her, you love her to death. Mazzucato with the economic history you need to know. Always good to speak with James Romer, Jim Romer, uh, on commodities, on weather, but of course with Hurricane Florence upon the nation, and particularly in the southeast, it's good to catch up with Jim uh, Romer. Jim, uh, what's your believability on the track of this hurricane? You followed El Nino, you followed global temperature in oceans forever. Is this a run-of-the-mill hurricane, or is there something different? 
Well, thanks, Tom. Sorry I missed you on TV uh, this morning. Uh, it's uh, really being affected by um, just a combination of a weakening La Nina and warmer Atlantic temperatures right now. We still feel overall, though, the hurricane season is going to be weaker than normal for the Gulf Coast and also for Florida. That's yeah. good for the orange juice crop. And also, it won't have an effect on the, on the energy markets. Well, I understand it won't have an effect on the energy markets, but it does on shipping as well. Let's start with square one, and your history on this is great. El, I, I assume El Nino Barada is a Pacific thing. Does, do those things affect the Atlantic Ocean? Well, they certainly do. You know, we don't have an El Nino right now. The ocean temperatures off the coast of Peru are actually very cool, and that's reducing shear right now in the Atlantic, and the reason we're seeing Florence as strong as it is. When we have an El Nino and warm eastern Pacific temperatures, things tend to really die out. This storm, I think, is going to be moving further south from something we call yeah. the Fujiwawa effect. Uh, Helena out in the Atlantic is going to curve this thing down towards the South Carolina coast. Yeah. The flooding will be really detrimental. Uh, a lot of equities could be affected by this more than commodities. Our, our, our um, Rob Carolyn uh, was very good on that as well. John, as I type here, I've got to type in the search engine of the crack Bloomberg surveillance a search engine, the Fujiwara effect. Okay, I'm up to speed here, and that's like two, two hurricanes or typhoons together, right, Jim? That's right. Well, actually, uh, my, my new weekly report called the Climate Intelligence Report, and on my, my website, really talks about this in a blog this morning. Uh, this has happened uh, quite a bit, and, and models tend to be wrong. So because of this, Helena, uh, we're going to see this thing hug the coast, go down the South Carolina coast. Stocks such as uh, Generic Holdings, which is a... Um, uh, a a uh, generator company yeah. that produced generator is probably seeing the biggest lift as well as Home Depot. Yeah, right I was going to say, what's the Home Depot effect here? And the answer is it's got to be huge and demonstrable. That's right. Well, you, in two days, you received uh, a 4 or 5% return, which takes you know several years to get a T-bill, obviously. You know? So yeah. there are a lot of stocks out there being affected more than the commodity markets right now. Let's go back right now to general commodities. Jim, we've seen an abundance of soybeans. We've got tariffs, this, that. What is your perspective on the front-loading of commodity purchases before these tariffs set in? Well, you know, demand is certainly slacking off. We're going to have the largest soybean crop in history. So we're going to see just all this farmers selling. I mean, beans are the lowest they've been in many years. We've been bearish all summer. The one market I thought would do better, which did well during June and July, was wheat. We've had global weather problems in much of Europe, yeah. Russia, Australia, and Canada. So I think you're seeing the, the wheat market outperform soybeans right. uh, because of the potential for demand later for wheat. What's your number one call right now except plywood in the southeast? <laughs> some of the stock equities, actually. Uh, some of the, I, I think um, I'm, I'm still pretty bare of soybeans. I think that the sugar actually has a chance to, to break out uh, with droughts in India. We've had everybody bearish the sugar mm-hmm. market. Now we're seeing rural production actually come down. So that's a trade. I think wheat will go up eventually, and I'm still kind of bearish okay. the soybean market. Jim Romer, thank you so much. We are now going to speak to the grizzled Stephen Auth of Federated about what we have wrought through the day from Kenneth Rogoff and Mariana Mazzucato. Steve Auth, one of the great themes here, which affects every listener, certainly in America, if not worldwide. And I want to go back on A Books right now, 1934. 
you can buy for $1,500 a hardback Benjamin Graham David Dodd on railroad security analysis, a book that changed everything about investment. And you've got a copy of that book. I've got a copy of that book. I didn't pay $1,500 for it. What what I want to say, Steve, is Ken Rogoff, not once, not twice, but three times talked about monopoly among American companies and particularly technology company. Are you buying blue chips in a time of monopoly? You know, these, these tech, there's nothing like a monopoly, Tom, because they have pricing power. And these tech companies are, in fact, the new monopolies, aren't they? Really. They have enormous pricing power, but they haven't really used it. They've, they've reinvested it, if you will, and they keep lowering prices on it around the economy. Um, so they've been benign monopolies in some ways. They're this okay, point. this is brilliant. They're benign monopolies. Let's take, let's pick a good morning, Mr. Bezos. We're thrilled that you listen to Bloomberg Surveillance. But Jeff Bezos has been benign. He would certainly say that. And his entourage would say that. But then there's a point. And the bargain he has with his public is we never get to that pricing power point. I, yeah. And I think most people think his model is such that he's not going to get there. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've been told, like, we had the PPI number this morning. And a little surprising to people, a little lower. But I, what mm. I keep emphasizing is uh, you've got some price pressure in the economy on the wage side. But you've got these benign monopolies, if you will, the Salesforce.coms or whatever, providing companies with the tools to improve productivity in ways that aren't always measured. And on the other side, you've got Jeff Bezos up there on a hillock with a Gatling gun looking for volunteers to raise prices. And so we're not getting the kind of late, so-called late cycle inflationary impulse that we should be getting. Technology fact, is dampening. As a I general think so. Statement. Right. Yeah. And that's what's extending this cycle. It's so it, there's a benefit to all of us, really. Okay, so this goes to yesterday's bombshell with Nomura cutting out Tesla and using this word investable. And I said to someone, I said, in America, we don't say a Graham Dodd word, which was speculation. It's like un-American to use the word speculation. Has this market, Steve Auth, become more of a speculation because of some of these larger macro trends? I don't think so, Tom. I mean, you can buy and buy and own with comfort today. Right. I mean, look at the va the valuation on the overall market has actually gone down in the last 12 months. We're trading here around 17 times uh, this year's earnings. 17 times this year's Make America Great Again earnings. Yeah. That's what happens not, when that's we pull not back? excessive. Oh, no, I agree. At all. And, and if you start looking at stocks, individual stocks, I mean, there's a whole lot on my buy list. They're trading at 10 to 12 times earnings. So like this give, is give not, me some names or sectors. I well, don't the financial stocks are dirt cheap right mm -hmm. now. JP Morgan's one that we like, as you know. Uh, the energy stocks are completely on their backs. Yeah, there's Maybe a, for talking up Schlumberger. Yeah. John, John Krinsky was talking up Schlumberger the other day. The industrials are low to, you know, low to mid-teens. Uh, mm -hmm. Even Apple, as much as it's had a nice, very nice run, it's trading well, at 16 times. Let me rip up the script here then, because two days ago, we began the theme uh, around a wonderful interview that said Apple is under-owned by institutions. They did not mention federated, but people, you know, long-only buy-side institutions. 
And those people that are behind Steve Auth have to catch up. And by definition, they have to acquire Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon and the others. Do you buy that idea that Apple has a win behind it just because everybody's got a gunpoint by it? Uh, maybe. Uh, I, I don't necessarily that there's certainly it's not overowned in that mm -hmm. sense, although it is overowned, Tom, in a way that the big flows in the last seven years have been to the passive funds. And that's partly been the win behind the Apple's stock right. price rise. Right. So and the money flowing in passive this year, 30, 30 percent upside in Apple this year. Right. It's been up 30 percent. So it's heavily definition. owned yeah. by the country because a lot of them mm -hmm. are in these passive funds. I don't think you could say it's under owned. OK. Yeah. Within this and within equity is the surprise within the four accounting statements. What are you most focused on now? And to take away shareholder equity, what are you most focused on? An income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement? Well, we always are looking at balance sheets, Tom, because you know you, you don't want to get yourself in a situation um, with a dangerous level of leverage. I, actually, balance sheets are generally in good shape. There's some areas that are weak, but generally corporate balance sheets are pretty good. We look at cash flows because we think cash flows really drive value. And that for us is a big driver of our whole process uh, mm. on investing. And the cash flows to us look very, very good. And the quality of earnings, therefore, mm. to us looks really solid across many sectors in the economy right now. Question I can ask you and I would ask it of John Kerry up at Pioneer and, and other value investors is cash. There's a huge pressure at mutual funds to be invested. There's usually, do you have a, do you have a maximum cash you can hold by prospectus? No, like most of our prospectuses don't don't do that. I mean, we 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 acknowledge that many of our investors, particularly we work with in, in investor advisors, they like to do their own allocating. So yeah. they prefer we're fully invested, and we tell people we will endeavor to be fully invested usually. But we've never, we're not big at Federated at, you know, locking down our portfolio managers and not allowing them right. to use cash. We're very opportunistic in our portfolio approach. So we sometimes will hold 10% cash in a portfolio because we don't see any particular values at the moment. What um, are you lightening up on now as you find opportunities in banking and energy? Well, at the margin, uh, let me re know. let me rephrase this in a more delicate manner. Did you sell all your Amazon yesterday? No, no way. How could no. you? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You, what are you lightening up? It's on? one Seriously. reason we like the market, Tom. We're lightening up on bonds more than we are on. Okay, interesting. And maybe interesting. on cash a little bit. Price you know, up. Previous price up. Yield down, and you just can't own them here. Yeah, yeah. We're we're max underweight right now on bonds. And, you know, it's one reason we like the market was we think the tech stocks that have led to us still look fundamentally good. I think they're probably due for a little bit of a pause, but I wouldn't guess a big pullback. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it could play catch up. Well, how do buy and hold do? I mean, I mean, within the long term, more conservative movement of a five year hold, a seven year hold, or even dare I say buy and hold, is that a dangerous strategy now? Do you have to be more nimble? I think you've got to be a little more nimble, Tom. But you know, one reason our performance has been decent uh, is that we've we've tried to hold turnover to reasonable levels. But to yeah. just buy and hold is a little bit naive. The world keeps changing. There's all these disruptors out there. 
you want to try to stay on Fair. top of them, and you got to make sure the companies you okay. own aren't being disrupted. So it's not just as simple as buying all. Well, let me go to my pet project, which is rebalancing. Everyone knows I'm not a big fan of, you know, the consultants come in. We got to deal <laughs> with this every day. We need a fee. Rebalance every X number of months, quarters. Soon they're going to be rebalancing. Rebalance on Thursday. It's rebalance Thursday. Rebalancing is a good way to lose winners, isn't it? Yeah, you got to let your winners run. I mean, unless you think you're smarter than everybody else all the time. I mean, the reason they're up is usually because something good's happened. So uh, we try to let our winners run. At certain levels, maybe the risk exposure gets to be too much. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, uh, you know, we're not big on, uh, you know, daily rebalancing. Oh, this has been a clinic. Steve, oh, thank you so much. I love doing this, folks. You have, you know, a given interview, in this case, with Ken Rogoff and Mariana Mazzucato. And then if someone of the capabilities of Mr. Author Federated Investors uh, come in to really f- further hone that conversation, is a, a great privilege. Steve Auth with Federated uh, Investors with us on the equity uh, markets. Joining us today is Bill Dudley, the recently retired president of the New York Federal Reserve and truly a man who was in the middle of the crisis. Good morning, Bill. You came to the Fed in 2007, so you were there for the crash. You were on the markets desk, and then they made you president in 2009, and you had to clean it all up. So let's go back to that time period, uh, 2007 to 2008 first. When did you first realize that we were not dealing with issues of individual institutions, but a system-wide crisis? Yeah, pretty early on, uh, Mike, because I could see that the housing bubble was basically uh, very vulnerable to being uh, burst. And and if if it did burst, it was going to put a lot of pressure, especially on the non-banking part of the financial system. So securities firms, finance companies, uh, mortgage banks. Uh, And so what we saw is just a very big increase in stress on the financial system. And starting in 2007, but mostly in 2008, things started to break. And unfortunately, the regulatory regime that we had in place then was pretty well suited to handling bank problems, but not very well suited to handling non-bank problems. And non-bank problems were where the problems turned up first. Well, take me inside the, the markets room during that period. I've spoken to people who were on the markets desk that worked for you who said they were just dumbfounded watching Fedwire, the interbank transfer system, as the money just flowed out. Well, I think that what happened was that there was a tremendous loss of confidence uh, in financial markets. And when confidence is lost, it's very hard to bring it back. And that's why the Federal Reserve really had to take extraordinary steps, not just in terms of intervening to prevent catastrophic failures of firms that might take down the entire financial system, but also to support markets uh, so people could continue to borrow and lend. Because at the end of the day, it's the flow of credit that supports the economy, supports households, supports businesses. So the Fed had to take some extraordinary steps. Now, the good news is we're probably a lot better placed today than we were then. The banking system is a lot stronger, a lot more capital and liquidity. Uh, but there's still some some risk. Uh, some of the powers that the Fed has to intervene in crisis have actually been trimmed back by Congress. Uh, Emerging risk may arise in new areas. Uh, to the extent that you regulate the banking system uh, uh, more, you're probably going to push more activity out into the non-bank sector. So that's something that we need to keep our eye on in the future. What was the scariest moment for you? 
Uh, I think the scariest moment was really the you know, week after Lehman failed and financial markets completely melted down, both uh, in terms of you know, the willingness of people to uh, buy commercial paper from highly rated companies uh, and uh, the, you know, the unwillingness of people just to transact with one another. There was essentially a huge flight to liquidity. People were hoarding liquidity. And it, you know, the market function basically just broke down. Did it shock you after working at Goldman Sachs for years that they almost went to? Not really. I mean, uh, the, the, the investment banks were pretty vulnerable in the sense that they had, they were very leveraged. They didn't have a lot of capital. Uh, they were dependent on short-term wholesale funding to finance uh, some long-term, hard-to-value, illiquid assets. And so when the funding started to run, uh, that put all investment banks, including Goldman Sachs, in, in harm's way. Now, the good news was that uh, making Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley uh, bank holding companies, uh, having them go out and raise private capital, uh, right after Lehman uh, failed, uh, did reassure people in the markets that these were viable companies uh, with viable business models. But it was a close call for some of the investment banks. Well, there's still an argument 10 years on of whether Lehman could have or should have been saved, which may be two different questions. Uh, how would you answer those? Well, I think it's people exaggerate how important it was one way or the other. You know, the financial crisis was going to get worse regardless because the housing sector was collapsing and housing prices were going down. So even if Lehman somehow had been saved, other bad things would have happened until Congress passed the TARP legislation, which brought forth a lot of money that could be used to recapitalize the banking system. If Lehman hadn't failed, it would have been harder to get Congress to move, and so other bad things would have happened. It would have been a different path, but I don't think it would have been a better path in terms of how the financial crisis would have paid, played out. Uh, you mentioned some of the regulatory changes that have taken place for good and for bad. Uh, are we fighting the last war, or do we have a regulatory system that can cope with maybe whatever comes up in the banking system now? Well, I think there's always a risk that you fight the last war, right, because you learn the sources of vulnerability uh, caused by the, the last period of stress. So like money market fund reform, central clearing of over-the-counter derivatives, sort of, sort of lessons learned from the last crisis. Uh, it's hard to learn the lessons before you actually experience sort of bad outcomes. So I, I do worry about the non-bank financial sector. Uh, a lot of credit in the United States is intermediate outside of the core banking system. Uh, now, the fact that some of the major securities firms are now regulated entities and subject to capital and liquidity requirements is good, but there's still a lot of activity that takes place uh, not in the core banking system, and I worry about that. Out in Jackson Hole, I asked some of your former colleagues what the major legacy of the crisis was, and I thought Jim Bullard had one of the best answers. He said it changed central banking forever. Well, I think what it did is it basically underscored the importance of financial stability in the pursuit of the Fed's monetary policy goals. Without financial stability, you cannot achieve your inflation and employment objectives. And so financial stability now is a really core part of how the Federal Reserve thinks about uh, its job and, and monetary policy. But how do you do that? I mean, you have one blunt instrument. Well, that's one of the challenges for the U.S., frankly. Uh, the, you know, other countries have more ability to put in place what are called macroprudential tools, like changing the loan-to-value ratio for mortgages or requiring people to put more money down when they, when they buy uh, a mortgage. Uh, we, we, have, we, we could 
practice do the same thing in the U.S., but it's very, very difficult because the regulatory apparatus in the U.S. is very, uh, you know, uh, at, at, atomistic. You know, we have state regulators, we have federal regulators, we have several federal regulators. So it's very hard to do things uh, in a coordinated way on the macroprudential side to deal with financial stability issues. Now, the good news is we do have the Financial Stability Oversight uh, Council, and so in principle they could do things, but whether they'll actually be able to act in a timely way, that remains an open question in my mind. Uh, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater was on uh, just a few moments ago with us, and he said we're in about the seventh inning, that maybe about two years from now we will see a recession, and it will be a bad one because of the impact of uh, the dollar on global markets and because of a lot of unfunded uh, liabilities out there. Uh, from the comfortable perch of retirement, are you as worried as Ray is about what may be coming down the pike? Well, I'm worried about a couple of things. One, obviously, trade policy. Uh, to the extent that we get into a trade war with China, that's not going to be a, have a good outcome. Uh, number two, I'm worried about the fiscal sustainability of the of the track that the U.S. is on in terms of its budget and debt. You know, ending this cycle with a budget deficit of five percent of GDP is a pretty horrible performance. And of course, I think the fact that the global economy is still very dollarized. A lot of people around the world use dollars, and so to the extent that something bad happens in the U.S., that will get communicated back to the rest of the world because we live in a dollarized global economy. Okay, you're retired. Where was your dot? <laughs> I'm pretty close to the consensus. I was pretty close to the consensus. I think the Fed is, you know, continuing to do, you know, the right thing, gradually removing accommodation. I'm very much uh, aligned with, uh, uh, with Chair Powell in terms of the monetary policy outlook. All right. Bill Dudley, recently retired uh, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.